Hey, everybody. I wrote a book. I'm super excited and I'd love for you to check it out. No Longer Denying Sexual Abuse, Making the Choices That Can Change Your Life is now available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Goodreads, anywhere that you read a book. So please check it out. And I've also launched my 21-week series, No Longer Abused, which is free. All you have to do is buy a copy of the book. For more information, go to nolongerdenyingsexualabuse.com and sign up for one or all of the 21-week series. And now, on to our guest. I'm a writer. I love writers and I coach writers. So it makes sense that I'd interview writers from all areas, blogging, TV, film, songwriting, podcasting, but also the new writers, the first timers that did it, that took the plunge because at one point they heard from someone, you should write a book about that. Sophie McCallum is a self-love coach. She calls herself the love peddler, which is smartly trademarked, which I love. I'm always urging my clients to identify any kind of IP or writing, you know, IP that they could bring into their author brand. She's a Manhattanite through and through. She's a mom and she fronts a rock and roll band. So we're going to explore a bit more about who she is and talk about why she hasn't written a book yet. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here. So if it's okay, I wanted to start the conversation first talking about a topic that's very dear to my heart, and that's sobriety. And so for my own sober journey, I believe, you know, putting addiction and sticking with it into a category of one of my greatest achievements, honestly, in self-love. So tell us a little bit about that. Tell us a little bit about getting sober and you know what that looks like for you in terms of self-love. Yeah. Well, I sort of identified alcohol as something I that was really negatively impacting my life when I was 20 years old. I'm 48 today. I told myself when I was 20 that I would stop drinking. I didn't get sober until I was 40. So it was <laughs> a long, a long, long two decades. 20 years. So I was just, I've done the math. I think I probably realized, I probably relapsed about 60 times because I would try and stop and try and stop and try and stop. I had some dark periods from really the age of like 14 to 20, 21. Mm -hmm. And then I sort of struggled to keep it together, but I did. And I had my children and I was married to a very nice man, the father of my children. And I had sort of controls and procedures in my life that allowed me to not have too many dark moments. Like I was busying myself with all of these, right. with building a life. Right. In 2012, I got separated from my husband, ex-husband. Mm-hmm. And I all of a sudden had time without my children. And I wow. like overnight went back to the way I was from like 14 to 21. Like, oh, wow. So and, what did uh, that look like? Was that like bottles that, of wine at night by yourself? Oh, or? well, certainly towards the end, you know, before towards the end, it was a lot of wine at night. You know, when I went in to give birth to my third child, I'm certainly not proud of this, but I also believe in telling your story because yes, it, there are so many people out there shaking their head. Like when I walked into Lenox Hill Hospital, 
when my water broke, I was like, I don't know if I should tell you now that I'm a little drunk or later. And the nurses just looked at me and was like, thank you for telling me. Oh, that's fair. Cause you, that could mess up like an epidural, you know, who knows yeah, what exactly. that could mix with. Yeah. So, but I, you know, I had had the better part of a bottle of wine at lunch and my water broke in the restaurant in the bathroom downstairs. <laughs> You know, everybody's okay today, but certainly when I was, you know, as my life was kind of at the time, I would describe it as imploding. Mm -hmm. Really, it was, it was a shift. It was a big shift for me around that age. And I was drinking heavily when I didn't have my kids, I would all be drinking. And then all of a sudden just snap and I would be just overwhelmed with emotion. I would wander the streets of New York in tears. I would Mm. sit. Ubers if it was cold, and I would just tell the driver not to drive anywhere. I just needed somewhere to cry. Um, oh wow! I had my own apartment that I owned. I had tons of friends I could have gone to. Yep. I had my parents there. They would have taken me in at any point. I mean, I had really everything I have today, but I couldn't see it. Like I really felt that I had nowhere to go. And then on top of the sort of emotional eruptions that I would have when I was drinking. I now know that I I had no ability to actually operate as an adult emotional human being. I learned that <laughs> sobriety. That wasn't that certainly wasn't what sent me into the rooms of AA, which is what, you know, where I go today. Aside from that, I also my physical allergy when I first got sober and I remember reading that it's a mental obsession and a physical allergy. I was like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, can't stop thinking about it. If I'm not right. drinking, thinking about is wanting a drink. And right. if I thinking, at least I have my medicine, right? For what I believe is a disease, but the physical allergy was such that I couldn't um, function with the hangovers. I mean, even one drink when I would try to control it, it, my body was just telling me like, stay away. Rejecting it. Right. 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 And the physical, you know, by, as I like stopped and start and stopped and started over the years in the beginning, I could be like, all right, tomorrow I'm going to stop. And I'd stop by the end. I would say I'm going to stop and it would take me a while to stop and I wouldn't stop for very long. So like my right. ability to have any, you know, small excuse for control was ending quickly. And yes. I was very fortunate that I got sober six months after I married a second time. My husband has a lot of experience with this disease. I wasn't alone in recognizing that I had a problem. He was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, he saw it. He do. saw it. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And I was going to lose him. I was going to lose him. Yeah. Right. Well, it's not, you know, we're, you know, the older we get, less attractive it is for, you know, us being sort of drunk and emotionally incapable and spirit in the spiritual malady and everything they talk about in AA. And, you know, I came in at 44. So I was out there as just as long as you. And same thing, you know, drinking at home alone when the kids are with my ex, kind of thinking, is it like this is it and and alone too like the party yeah. was over like there were no more clubs there was no more like i didn't even put on any cute outfits anymore i just right. i just drink and i wasn't a like a bottom drinker either which is what kept me out for so long like i would get loaded but not like loaded enough to really like say that i had a problem but it's it's the spiritual bankruptcy that really pushed me i was like wait i think there's a better life for me like what Wait, maybe there is, and I'm so grateful being sober nine years. Uh, you know, this year, what kind of like evolution did you have as a creative being in your sobriety? Like, what happened to you creatively? Funny that you should ask that because I, during the pandemic, I put a band together. Well, not me alone, but four of us came together. We're now five. 
and started a band called Four Track. And we play Great all name. covers. It's all like rock and roll, you know, 60s, 70s, A and B sides. Just we got to all love it and we play it. We do a lot of Zeppelin, which I would be in a full Zeppelin cover band. Um, <laughs> if I could, that's really my favorite jam. Yes. I mean, um, we, can do ramble, we can do Ramble On. Your life we is do. We, we yeah. close every show with Ramble <laughs> On because we do it so well. And interestingly enough, my grandfather was a violinist and he played all strings on some of the Zeppelin records. Records. So no. he was the one who told Jimmy Page to try using a bow on his guitar in the oh, studio. That is a, wow. That is cool. What lineage you have. Exactly. Thank you. That's my favorite uh, family fact. But interestingly enough, I said to the guys in the band recently, I was like, I thanked them. I just said, like, I'm finally at a point now with the music where I am as comfortable on stage and like I'm bringing it the way I used to bring it, bring it when I drank. And I had my drinking down to a science as a performer. I would have one shot of gin before each set. And then I would drink at the end. That was so I didn't get like totally blotto, which I still did sometimes. But that was like my general rule for good behavior. It was like a shot before each set. And now I I have like my mojo back without the booze. Like I'm totally comfortable on stage. And that's new. It took me like a year and a half. Yeah, really. it was just November. We had a gig this past November where something in me clicked. I was just like back. It was so cool. I bet you bring it even beyond the drink. You know what I mean? Like we're yeah, probably we're not just us sober. We're us right. in a completely different frame of being, right? Because we've uncovered who we truly are, right? We've uncovered right. that person that we were trying to trying to drink away, right? Trying to push mm-hmm. down. So, you know, I know like I was scared when I got sober that I wasn't going to be able to write anymore. You know, I was that screenwriter, film producer that drank and everybody did, you know, it was like endemic in the, in the industry. So like, what kind of creating do you think you see yourself doing in the future? We're going to get to the book, but in terms Mm -hmm. of like calling yourself the self-help peddler, that came in, I'm imagining, in the last couple of years. What was the creation and process behind that? Well, the self-love peddler, do you know Sorry, the book? Self-love, self-love. Okay. I think I said self-help. Do you know Caps for Sale? It's like a children's book, 50 cents uh, a cap. I, I have read Caps for Sale a thousand times. <laughs> well, I always just loved that guy and the way he was just like, I got like a shit ton of hats on my head. And I'm going to walk through this little hill town and I'm going to sell my caps. Like ballsy move, right? Like right. he probably has caps already, right? <laughs> and also, if you remember that book, he goes on to like get the monkey, the monkey steal his hats and right. they're all up the tree. And he, I won't tell the whole story. If you're really interested, you can go find it pretty easily. Go buy it. It's a great kid's book. So he, when the monkeys steal all his caps, when he finally gets the caps back, it's because he gets so mad that he throws his cap on the ground. So then all of the monkeys throw their caps on the ground and he gets yes. them back. Kind of like really reminded me of like sort of meeting some, I won't say meeting someone where they're at because you'll appreciate that I don't like to end sentences and prepositions, but meeting somebody <laughs> in the same place, mm-hmm. the place where they're going to resonate the most and you're going to get the most out of them. And it's going to be the best energy exchange, right? Like finding that beautiful, like I have a nephew who loves math and like, we never really, he never really understood why he should like me. All my nephews call me uncle Sophie. 
And the other guys liked me because I'm like one of the guys. But my youngest nephew was more complex. And it wasn't until I sat down and did math with him that he was like, oh, she's got a brain. I like her. So just the idea of that, that book is something that I love all of the messages in the book. So peddler to me comes from that book. I don't know if they use the word peddler in the book, but to me, he was always the peddler. My husband associates peddler with drug dealers and like snake oil salesmen. But I, <laughs> Right. I know I I can I think he does. I think he might be called a peddler. I I the book yeah. we have the book in storage cuz I would never throw that book away, but no. I um, have mine I think, when I was a kid. I think of a peddler as more of like a, at like a like a eastern, you know, right. European. Like, I've got the wares and they can help you. Yeah, like I've got yeah. the gra- I've got the mats and the like hats, right. totally. you know, that's Anyone. a peddler to me. Yeah, no, a dealer so, is, is yeah. who has the drugs. I've never gone to the peddler for my drugs. <laughs> I've gone to the dealer. The cocaine dealer. Peddler. Yeah, good. Okay, well, we've proven my husband wrong. So step one, achieved. But um, no. <laughs> so, Exactly. Honestly, the self-love, I was literally, I can tell you exactly where I was sitting the moment I learned to love myself. Mm-hmm. And I had been engaging from, I mean, I shared in my own podcast that when I was very young, I would sit in front of the mirror and I would hit myself with my hairbrush to like punish myself for something. I don't know what. And the number of women who have been like, oh my God, I did that too. Yeah, I so, bet. Like I was always engaging in behavior that was hurtful. It was, I, I felt a need to harm myself for some reason, to punish right. myself for some reason. Mm-hmm. I do not know why. And I've come to not really care why because right. it just is what it is. It might just be like a fact. I remember where I was sitting when I realized that I loved myself and I realized that I was ready to start building the life of my wildest dreams, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I was, and it was that again was like just another switch for me. And part of my business was we all have pain points, right? And I feel very lucky that my pain point was alcoholism, my biggest pain point. And there was a solution and I was able to actively work that solution as I, and I still actively do today. And I wanted to create a platform where I was, I was offering a place to heal and grow and get to that place of self-love, no matter what your pain point. Right. My business today is taking women. I have some male clients too, but primarily women today in this moment where they are and combining her with that woman that you know back there is who you want to be and who you were meant to be and something's stopping you. Right. So bringing those two people together and do and recognizing that doing that that's not a flip switch. That is it's a process. Journey. And yes. that process and that journey is the goal. Yeah. So like the second you start you've succeeded. Right. You're already there. You're already there. You're yeah. doing it. Change is going to happen, right? We can count on it. Right. So if right. change is going to happen, why don't we put some intentionality behind it and actually mm-hmm. transform? Mm-hmm. But first you got to figure out, you got to do the work. Like, what do I love about myself? What do I want to change about myself? Why right. do I feel this way? So that's kind of the work. That is the platform for the self-love peddler. I think it's a great platform and you, and you incorporate into it some aspects that I stand by. It's just peace, right? Like we don't have to do anything in like a shit show, like puddle of chaos anymore. We can actually be peaceful. 
Um, and also breathe, like just to breathe, you know, just the other day I got some news about something and I had like a series of things to do. And I just sat in the parking lot of Best Buy and just went, <sighs> and it just, everything was fine again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Versus spinning out and creating more chaos. And, and so like, what is the breath to you? Like if you were going to define the breath, what is it? Well, it's hard because for I do breath work classes. So breath to me, very specifically, like sort of when you say breath, I think of like energize because that's what the breath work I do does. It really like it calls in like this incredible energy. I honestly, I was not 10 years ago, someone who thought I'd be sitting here talking about energy. But when I do my breath work, <laughs> I literally can feel it like bouncing off the walls mm -hmm. of my studio. Like it's incredible. So breath to me is energized. So, but are you meaning like, what do I do for a pause kind of? No, just like, I think the word breath, if you were going to take it in the literary sense for me means peace. Mm -hmm. It is a moment of peace. I'm grabbing a moment of peace that only I can do for myself. No one else can breathe for me. No one else can tell me to breathe, right? I have to do that. So what is your definition of that? of breath for you. Intentionality is really paramount for me. I have this will bring in the book that I am actually starting to write. <laughs> okay, <laughs> good. Let's talk about it. Of modalities that you do intentionally every day that helps you connect with the self. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm but on top of it all, you know, I'm writing the introduction right now and my I've written other parts as well. My thought for the introduction is it's okay if there's a day that you're not intentional, mm -hmm. even though that is like kind of for me been the puzzle piece is like really being thoughtful about my actions and my words and my behavior and uh, even my thoughts. But yet, and also, which are also and, which is something I love to remember, that two things that seem contrary can absolutely exist at once and both be true. Sometimes you get overwhelmed and you need to just, ugh. and I think that some piece that's missing in this like YOLO, let's get hard culture of like, go, go, like, go, let's go, do it. Live yeah. best life every moment. Yeah. Yeah. Is, I think a lot of, people burn out because they don't feel that they're allowed to just stop for a second. And breathe. And, and breathe. just breathe. And just take a minute. I have things that I wanted to talk to you about about your book, but now you brought up something that I'm going to completely go off on. So okay. a lot of new authors who haven't written before think they need to write the introduction. And it's a huge myth. The introduction is never where you want to start. Nobody reads the introduction, really. Right. I mean- and it's not a place to organize your thoughts. It's a lot of authors think, well, I'm going to write the introduction. I'm going to organize all my thoughts and then I'm going to go write the book. And then I end up finding a lot of stuff in the introduction that actually should be in chapter one or should be in chapter two or should be in chapter three. So I always say outline first, don't do the introduction. If you want to write an introduction when the book is over, the introduction is going to be everything you didn't actually say in the book. Because hmm. then if anybody reads it, they get a little extra, extra. But then if somebody, you know, doesn't read it, it doesn't really matter. It's not like they lost something. Right. So 
clients will come to me a lot and say, well, I've written the introduction and I've written like a couple chapters and I'm like, okay, that's great. I don't really, like, I'm not that interested in reading your introduction, you know, at all, because it's, if it has anything in it, we need, then we need to move it, move it out. So that's just something, you know, I wanted to say, you had said to me that you felt that your voice was very millennial when we talked on the phone. And so as you are starting to do some exploration with your writing, how are you, how have you taken the time to identify what the millennials are looking for? I don't know that I have. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> you know, it's, what do you um, need to, which I need to, I go back and forth because I do find that when I speak to millennial women, they want to hear more and they're intrigued, but yet I also really resonate with women of my own age. So that is actually not a struggle of my business, but it's something I'm still working to identify. Like I sort of hit both right. groups with an impact. Well, 35 to 55 is fine. 35 to 55 the way that I always like to say it is at 53 years old, I can have a conversation with a 38 year old and we've both used a payphone. Right. Interesting. So we're still in the same mindset. It's not so far out. It's when you start to get with books that you're trying to sell to a 30 year old and then you're trying to sell to a 53 year old that you have a disconnect. Mm -hmm. It's almost like technology drives it. It's kind of weird that way. But it's different in, in ways we are parented, latchkey stopped at a certain point. And so we had different struggles, different survival skills. You want to be wary of dipping too below a certain age when you're pitching your book. And then finding your niche audience and having your niche audience champion you to other ages, right? So like maybe a 30-year-old might tell her mom about the book and so on and so on. But you want to definitely talk directly to your audience and really know who they are because that's going to that's gonna shape everything about what you write about because you're talking to them. I mean, you're having a conversation with them through the book and you want to be able to do that. So tell me in terms of what you want to write about, what is like your driving desire? Like what is your pain point that you want to solve with your book? Really just the same thing with my business is creating a platform of understanding that everyone can shine and doing it at a very human level, a very accessible, like, like you are a miracle. You are mm -hmm. capable of living the life that you are deserving of. Mm -hmm. It takes work. And here are the steps that you can take in a very like proof is in the pudding. You do these things and your life will improve. You will reconnect with yourself. And you will start to fill that hole inside of you if you have one, even if you are sort of in touch with the self as well. These modalities are still something that can take you to that next level. Right. And so that you go out in the world so full that like the light within you can shine because you're not getting drowned by taking on everyone else's stuff. Because right. you know what it means to be Kim when you go wake up in the morning. You you've done mm -hmm. the work to know. Sometimes. <laughs> Well, if you read sometimes book, I'm like, you read well, book, you <laughs> I'm pitching, I'm pitching. That's really the message it takes consistency. It takes intentionality uh, and it takes work, but the work is the goal. So then right. it becomes fun. Right. Right. If you sat in a panel with a bunch of agents and you told them that you would be rejected because you haven't given me anything solid. You've told me about your process. You've told me about your point of view. You've told me about your viewpoint, but you haven't told me anything 
unique to you that's going to be a book that you have to write that nobody else can write but you from your very specific lane, right? Yeah. So it would have to be something, you know, I mean, the first thing that obviously comes to mind is you've got the unique story of late in life sobriety. And you also have the unique story of, you know, you're married a second time and you're now living the second life and have discovered this business. So there's something within there that needs to be unearthed. Because I always say this on this show, and I say this to clients all the time, like, you don't want to be one of 33 million books on Amazon. Right. That just sucks. I'm sorry. It just does. It Nobody reads. I mean, it's just it's just too many books to not be identified as. You want to be like a very special book that mm. has a really deep purpose. And you you appear to me to be a very deep person, but you also seem like you have a big personality and a lot to say and a lot to share, right? So tapping into that big personality and showing your audience exactly who you are and understanding what it is they want to hear from you, specifically you. Like why are they, I, I, I say this to clients, why would somebody want to go to like Lincoln Center and see you talk about your book? Right. Buy a ticket for $45 to sit there and listen to you talk. Got it. You got to know, right? And you got to think about why you would go to. There's not a lot of people. I'm going to go to Lincoln Center and pay forty five dollars a year to talk about their book. There's like Pema Chodron, you know what I mean? <laughs> I go listen to Pema talk anytime, you know. I mean, there's very few. I mean, there's some good authors on my shelf that I would say I'd probably go listen to speak that have written magnificent books. A lot of them are fiction. But anyway, yeah, I just wanted to, I just wanted to, for because people listening are very incentivized by the discussions and they mm-hmm. want to hear, you know, what you're bringing to the table and they want to hear what my thoughts are on that. And everything's in the development process, obviously. Yeah. Well, so, it's all great feedback. And part of my not giving you specifics is I don't really want to until I've written more of this book. <laughs> Like, do you know what I mean? Part of me wants to like let the cake bake. I don't want to just give you batter right now. Right. Like, right. Let me the cake evolve. just let it evolve. Yeah. It's in the bowl getting mixed. Like it's, <laughs> it's still very, very early. When I met you, I hadn't started this process and I did not meet you that long ago. So that's great. That's yeah. amazing that you're getting going. That's getting very going. impressive. Yes. That's very impressive. I'm very excited. <laughs> so t- so give one final tip to the listeners that you know we could leave them with to help them be more consciously compassionate in their life today. I would say when you wake up, try this. Imagine that you are your four-year-old self and take your morning routine, whatever that is right now, you know, brushing your teeth, making your coffee, whatever you do in those first 15 minutes of the day and do it for yourself the way you would for that young version of yourself. Mm. And then take some time to sit down and notice how you did things differently. And then take some time to think about how your life would be if you treated yourself more frequently with that kind of compassion, love, and care. And just beautiful. Think about it. That's beautiful. I love that. And for those of you who can't remember being four, you can also do it, right? With six. Six. A dog. 
I mean, treat yourself as you would your pet if you don't, if, if kids oh, are not that's your jam. Like just some, someone, someone who needs some help to get through the day. They're not going to make it without you. They need you and yeah. you need you. Yeah. So be there yeah. for yourself the way you'd show up for, for someone else in need. Yeah. That's great advice. Someone just said to me yesterday that we tend to do more for others than we would ever do for ourselves. So we have to flip that switch and start doing for ourselves more what we'd be doing for others. And really the concept just sort of like, like it kind of, like it's such a simple, obvious concept, but it kind of blew my mind because I was like, you know, the first reaction is I don't do that. (laughs) Right. And I was like, oh yeah, I do. We are, we're kind of, we're raised to, I mean, that's something that our generation, you say like, know your crowd, like our generation was still raised. Like we had moms who sort of could do anything, but it wasn't really clear, like what, what they could do? do and what not to do. And like, if so true. You know, the ones who did it, what's that? Okay. The ones who didn't do it, it was still okay. But you know, there was, we were still being raised that like the best thing I'm reading a book right now called fuck happiness. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse. Sorry if I'm sure. Not. Why not? Ariel Gore is the writer. And okay. she talks a lot about like, you know, growing up and her, she's roughly our age and her, her grandparents, grandfather telling her like, all you've got to do is smile and make sure every, everyone's comfortable when you smile. Like you set the, you, you set the tone for everyone else's mood. And I realized that in reading this book that like women are very much raised and I still do it in my family to be responsible for everyone's emotional state, which mm-hmm. is like not possible. But when I do know from doing the work myself and with other people that when you fill your tank first and when you give yourself the the things that you need, and my book will be full of the things that you need to practice radical self-love, you are able to be more compassionate to others. It just mm-hmm. happens. Right. The kind of compassion you give to others when you have filled yourself with compassion first is much more plentiful and, and weightier than the compassion you're doling out with an empty tank. You just can't Absolutely. get what you don't have. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love fill your tank. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. And uh, we're looking forward to hopefully in 2024, seeing your book. Can't wait. I'll get back to it right now. (laughs) Thanks, Kim. You've been listening to You Should Write a Book About That. We love reviews. If you enjoyed our show, head over to your platform of choice to drop a review, share with a friend, or even better, if you want to write a book, be in touch. You can find us at KimOhara.com.